Well, here we are, the end of uh, the book of Joshua, and it's been incredible. So see the take the land one last time that uh, we've been dealing with for many, uh, many weeks now as we walk through this. But we come to the end, and we're going to be in Joshua chapter 24 today. And so you can go ahead and turn there. You can find it on your devices. It'll be on the screen in just a moment. But uh, I, I, when it comes to finishing strong, not everybody finishes strong. If somebody says, man, I was great in the 95-yard dash, you'd think, man, it's not enough. It's 100 yards or 100 meters, and so you, you fell short. You didn't do that. If I were to tell Pam, honey, I'm going to be committed to you for 360 days this year. And after, after I said that to her and I, I finally became conscious again, <laughs> we know that's not commitment. That's not finishing strong. That's not what that is. Today we come to the end, and Joshua actually finished strong. But, you know, I think back about seminary when I was there and many guys and gals that were going into the ministry and how many of them somewhere along the line, some kind of ambush took them out, and they didn't finish strong. Some of you know people that used to sit with right in this very facility who some, for something ambush has happened that's drifted them away from the Lord, and they're not going to finish strong. There's one thing, an exercise Pam and I like to do with uh, a pre-marriage couple uh, situation, is to be able to tell them this. Imagine your 50-year wedding anniversary. Imagine you're there, you've, uh, you've made it, you still are uh, passionately in love with each other, your kids are there, your grandkids are there, you're surrounded by friends, uh, church friends, godly friends that are surrounding you at that point. And just imagine that in your mind, okay, your 50-year wedding anniversary. Now, you're not married yet. We're talking to a pre-marriage couple. What steps do you need to take now to guarantee that that vision will become reality at 50 years? What do you need to do uh, spiritually? What do you need to do physically? What do you need to do financially? What steps do you need to take now to guarantee that you're going to come to that day? Well, let's translate that into our spiritual lives. Really, we're all here today. We're good people, right? We're, we're at church. But what's going to guarantee that when we come and we step out of these earth suits into eternity, that we will have finished strong? To be honest with you, you read the scriptures. You don't see just tons of people that finish strong. Noah did not finish strong. Moses actually did not finish the way it was intended. He ended up not being able to go in the promised land. David, King David, actually did not finish strong. And there's a guy that used to, was a protege and a disciple of Paul's by the name of Demas. And it says this about Demas. He says, Demas has now departed me and gone the ways of the world. How many people will finish strong? But that's not the question I want to ask today is what's going to guarantee that you're going to finish strong? Well, we're going to look at Joshua chapter 24, and let me go ahead and turn there, but let me kind of give you a background into Joshua chapter 23. They're in an area where there's two mountains, okay? And on these two mountains, they're yelling out the blessings and curses of the law, but what they're doing is they're renewing their covenant with God. They've, they now have all the land that they're going to have, even though they haven't gotten rid of all the enemies. They've divided the land among the tribes, and here they are. God has given them to And they have this time of blessing and renewing the covenant. And then that brings us to Joshua chapter 24. And so if you had got it, I want you to follow along. I'm going to stop some along the way just to make emphasis. But it says this in verse 1. Then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem, 
He summoned the elders, leaders, judges, and officials of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. Remember, this is at Shechem. I'll come back to that in a minute and and make note. But I'm going to start reading at verse 2 through verse 13. I'm just going to read it solid. And I want you to look at how many times that the Scripture says that God did something. He says it in first person. I did this. I did this. I did this. So note over this next reading. It says, Joshua said to all the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahar, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshiped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the Euphrates and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac and to Isaac, I gave Jacob and Esau. I assigned the hill country of Sarah to Esau. But Jacob and his family went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there. And I brought you out. And when I brought your people out of Egypt, you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea. But they cried to the Lord for help, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. He brought the sea over them and covered them. You saw with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians. Then you lived in the wilderness for a long time. They're, now they were the ones who chose the wilderness. Verse 8. I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived east of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them from before you, and you took possession of their land. When Balak, son of Zippor, the king of Moab, prepared to fight against Israel, he sent for Balaam, son of Beor, to put a curse on you. But I would not listen to Balaam. So he blessed you again and again, and I delivered you out of his hand. Then you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. The citizens of Jericho fought against you, as did all the ites. But I gave them into your hands. Verse 12. I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you, also the two Amorite kings. You did not do it with your own sword and bow. Verse 13. So I gave you a land on which you did not toil and cities you did not build, and you live in them and eat with vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. What it says is this. God is saying, I did this. I did this. I did this. You didn't do it. You are chosen people. I chose you, and I have done all these things. And here you are today. You're in a land that you did not toil for. You defeated enemies that I went before you and defeated them for you. I did all of these things for you. And I summarized it in in some of my words were this. The children of Israel had come out of slavery, and God delivered them and brought them miraculously through the desert and to the land of promise. He parted the Jordan River and established them in the land, and then he brought victory to them. That's what he was saying. God did all of these things. Remember, I told you from day one of going through this book that we're going to parallel the historical study of God's children coming into the promised land and seeing how that is a parallel to where we as Christ followers have been called into a victorious life of living with Christ. And so I summarize our walk this way. If we take all of that, the follower of Christ, through the sacrifice of Jesus, we are brought out of slavery to sin and delivered from the enemy. He brought us through on this journey, and his desire is for us to walk with him in victory in the land he has promised for us. And I call this the victorious Christian life.
But he has done it. So point number one, write this down. God has done it, and we are but receivers. We are receivers. What God has done is he has provided all for us, for salvation. He provided everything through Christ. He loved us when we were unlovable. He loved us unconditionally. It wasn't something that we earned it. He chose to love us in such a way that he saw that we were in bondage and we needed a Savior, so he sent Jesus Christ to give us true life at the cross. We did nothing to deserve that other than our sin. Paul said that, for by grace are you saved through, to, through faith. It's not a, uh, of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works. No one can boast. So it's not like, oh, we did our part and God did his part. No, no, no. We had nothing to offer. God sent Jesus Christ. You see, the struggle in our country, one of the struggles today, the God of our country, theologically, is what is called moral deism. If my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, then God is obligated to take me. That is totally false. We have nothing to offer in ourselves. What God did is he sent Christ while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. He became sin who knew no sin so that we could become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's why he came. He did it all. We are but receivers of what he has done for us. And that's what he did. And the other thing is he chose to take his very Holy Spirit who raised Christ from the dead, according to Romans 8, what it says, and he indwells us. But why do we not see abundant living among, and I'm not talking about wealth, I'm talking about spiritual prosperity among so many, and they just drop off and they don't finish strong. Dr. Graham Scroggy, this is a great quote, he says this, All Christians have eternal life, not all Christians have abundant life. There can be life without health. There can be movement without any progress. There may be war but defeat. We may serve but never succeed. We may try but never triumph. And the difference all along the line is the difference between possessing life and experiencing life more abundant. This abundant life is simply the fullness of life in Jesus Christ made possible by his death and resurrection, and made real by the incoming of his spirit. That is abundant life. The trouble with so many of us is that we are on the right side of Easter, but the wrong side of Pentecost. The right side of pardon, but the wrong side of power. And there's been many people who at some time in their life said, Jesus, I ask you to forgive me. Basically, a lot of times we're saying, I don't want to go to hell someday. I want to go to heaven. So I come and I make a commitment somehow to Jesus Christ, only to see that somewhere in the midst of that journey, there is no abundant living of the peace and the fruit of the Spirit of Christ in their life. And they finally decide this is too hard and they fall away. But we are not the doers. It, it has been done. We are the receivers. Many of us are like uh, this particular guy that I, I read about, and I, I love to go on. I, I, sometimes preachers tell stories, and they're not always truthful. And so I, I've made a commitment to you that I will always search out historically the best I can on anything. But it was 1944, World War II. Sub-Lieutenant Hiru Onoda of the Imperial Japanese Army had been ordered to stay on Labang Island in the Philippines. And he was there, and it was there in a group of men, and, uh, but yet he had not gotten word that the war had ended. 
And so it wasn't like a couple of months. They dropped propaganda literature to let, on the islands to let people know the war has ended, but he, he would not trust it. He stayed on that island fighting the battle, the war, for the next, you ready, 29 years. Finally, in 1974, he gave in because they sent who was one of his commanding officers down there to finally convince him that the war was over. I want you to know, the enemy has been defeated. The war has been won by Christ alone. He is, he's done everything he can to give us an abundant, full life. The question is, is why are we fighting against it so much in the battle instead of being receivers? We have come. We surrender. We yield ourselves. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. But point number one is, is that he, is, he has done it all. We are but receivers. Let's go on a little bit. We come to verse... 14, which is the crux of, of so many of what we read in Joshua at the end. It says this, Now fear the Lord and serve Him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. The line's being drawn in the sand right here. Whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. And then Joshua says this. You probably got it on your wall or somewhere. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. You choose who you're going you're gonna to serve, but I'm telling you today, for me and my household, we're going to serve the Lord. Now, point number two is this. God is looking for worshipers. God is looking for worshipers. In verse 14, he says two things. He says, fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Fear the Lord, serve him with all faithfulness. This is what it's going to take. You've got to fear the Lord. You've got to serve him with all faithfulness. What does it mean to fear the Lord? See, that, that's one we just, it's just beyond us. It's just beyond us to think there's a God who loves me because we talk about the love of God and that's what his ultimate character is. But how do we fear someone who loves us? The problem is we have lost the awe factor of God. We've lost that awe of that who He truly is. That, that within the throne room of God right now, there are angels who cover themselves because He is so holy and there's awesomeness in who He is. I love to go to the, the ocean or the mountains just to get an earthly, earthly glimpse of some kind of awesomeness. But we have lost it so much in what that awe and that reverence really is. And then he says, number two, to not only have that awe, but to serve him with faithfulness. I look at it this way. Serving God is love in action. It's actually worship. To serve him, we, we come into an awe of reverence. God holds my next heartbeat in his hands. And then we serve him. And that is love in action. Actually worship. And God is looking for worshipers. You remember I told you that this took place at an area called Shechem. Okay? There is a parallel story in the New Testament where Jesus in John chapter 4 meets a woman who um, has had her struggles, to say the least. Had five husbands. The guy she's with now isn't her husband. Jesus stops at this well in an area called Sychar. Sychar and Shechem are the same place. The New Testament, it's called Sychar. So it's in the very same place. 
And Jesus is having this conversation with this woman, and he's, he's given her life, that he is the Messiah. But they get into a discussion about worship. And in John chapter 4, verse 19, let me read just for a moment. The woman says this, Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers, remember I told you about the mountain situation, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For these are the kind of worshipers. I love this part. These are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. God is looking for worshipers. Here's the problem, though. Our definition of worship is we get dressed up, we come to church on Sunday, we hope the worship teams play some songs that we can sing, we hope that the message is inspiring, we have some time with one another, maybe in a group, and we call this worship. What's happened is our definition is way too limited. We come because we're called to come, but we are called to go and serve. And I want you to know something. Your service of faithfulness to the king is as much worship as you singing in here. We are called to put our love for him into action, and that's what worship is. But we've lost it all. We've lost our reference for God, and we are called to love him in action by serving. Nikola Tesla, most of you have heard of Tesla. Tesla was the inventor of the AC of ACDC and not the, the rock group, the, the alternate current. He was, he was an eccentric, great inventor, and he died in 1943. But there's, there's a, something out of the eccentricity of Tesla's life that was interesting. When a thunderstorm would occur, Tesla would take a chair, he would put it up to the window, and he would sit down in it. And when a lightning strike would come, Tesla would stand up and he would applaud God because he knew he was in the presence of something greater than anything he could even conceive. And he would set back down. There would be another lightning strike and he would get up and applaud God. I ask you, when was the last time you really applauded God for his greatness? You see, what we've done is we've taken the magnitude of our Creator and we've shrunk Him down to where if He meets my needs, we applaud Him instead of just applauding Him as God. We are called to be worshipers and He is seeking worshipers. Let's go on just a little bit farther. Verse 16, then the people answered it, far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our parents up out of Egypt from the land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. Yeah, we're going to serve him too. Joshua, you stood up and said, for you and your house, you're going to serve him. 
we're going to serve him as well. But look at verse 19. Joshua said to the people, you're not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been been good to you. But the people said, no, 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 we, we will serve God. We will serve God. You see the picture? Their leader has gotten them in front of them. He's made that challenge. He's drawn a line in the sand like the Alamo. Man, there's the line in the sand. We're going to serve God. You choose who you're going to serve. We're going to serve God, me and my family. And, and then the people say, man, God's done all these things for us. We're going to serve him. And then imagine your leader says, no, nah, you can't do it. You don't have it in you to do it. What in the world would make him say that very thing? These people who they had come in to take the land from, they had some things that would be ambushes that would take these people down. Just like there are many people today who will not finish strong because they have been ambushed somewhere by the enemy. Here's some of them. One was this, that, we, that they were not to embrace the gods of these people, the Canaanites. Well, why should they not embrace their gods? Well, they weren't the true God, but number two is they would lead to all kind of sensuality and destroying the people. The second thing is, is that the people would, uh, uh, they, their worship was such that they would take their very children and they would sacrifice them to a false god. And so he tells them, you do not intermarry. You do not let your families come together because what's going to happen is they're going to take you down. You're going to be ambushed. Look at these things. Sensuality, the breakdown of the family, and then it would be security that these people, you felt like they would give them. Money. Look at these ambushes. Tell me if these are not the things that are taking down so many people today. The schemes of the enemy are not new. He does them well. But our own flesh, we give in to them. Here's the third point. You write this down. Your commitment will be challenged. Your commitment is going to be challenged. In other words, you stand up today and say, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. I'm committed to you. And I'm telling you, somewhere along the line, it's going to be challenged. It will be challenged. Just like Joshua saying, listen, you can't do it. So look at verse 23, because he says, this is what it's going to take. You're going to finish strong. This is what it's going to take. Now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. Throw away the foreign gods, yield your hearts to the Lord. Do an investigation into your hearts. Are there any idols that are there? Anything you're embracing other than God himself? You need to rid yourself of these. It's a repentance. You do this all the time. Last week we did the Lord's Supper. We did an inventory of ourselves. God, what are those things I need to set aside and I need to yield my heart fully to you? This is what Joshua is saying to people. You're going to finish strong. You're not going to do it by embracing the world and what they're throwing at you. You're going to do it because you're willing to yield yourself completely to the Lord. Many of you know the story of the chicken and the pig who were walking down the street and and, uh, they were hungry. Breakfast time. And they saw a diner, and it said, special today is eggs and bacon. The chicken said, how about it? Let's go in and eat. And the pig stops him and says, listen, for you, that's a contribution. For me, that's all in. The reason that many fall away 
and that many of us are apathetic in our faith is we're making contributions to God instead of all in. As long as it feels good, I'm in. But He's asking us to yield our full hearts if we're going to finish strong. Let me give you one last point, and this is vital, and so I want you, I want you really to be with me. Going back to that verse about Joshua saying it's for me and my household, I want you to write this down. Today, you can make a complete stand, or you can make a stand for future generations. Joshua was able to stand and say, my whole household. And I want you to know, I think the challenge for us today is today we can make stands for future generations. And some of you in this very room are testimonies of breaking the chain of a past. I want to give you four quick thoughts, and you can write these down. I want them to stick with you. The first one is this, is that we need to break the chains of the past. We need to break the chains. I don't know what your chain may be. I don't know that stuff that got passed down to you, any kind of addictive kind of stuff, abuse kind of things, these kind of things. Alcohol has destroyed so many lineages. These things that have been there, divorce has been rampant through through generations and families, uh, identity struggles that have been there, all of these things, abuse that have been in there. But I tell you, you can make a stand today to change the direction for the rest of your lineage. Some of you have already done that, and praise God for that. Not that it was easy, but you were willing because God is real. He is in in the redemptive business. And so I want to encourage some of you today that you can make a stand today, but you're going to need to break with some of those demons of the past that you have clung to so tightly. You need to confess the woundings. Choose to forgive. Put them on God's hook and understand that God is in the redemption restoration business. So break the chains of the past. Number two, commit your home to the Lord. And you're saying, oh, we did that. We're Christians. Let me tell you, there are many Christians' homes that are not committed to the Lord. Let your children know that God is most important by what you say and how you live. Because often our actions speak so much louder than our words. Hear this. Godly parenting today takes guts you may have to disappoint some coaches and teachers and even your own children to be godly but it's worth it it is worth it we commit our homes not to be socially and politically correct but to be godly and that's what we're called to do as we raise another generation You know, well, let me make the third one. Break the chain. Commit your home to the Lord. Join Central in being a part of our family ministry. Let your heart break with that 4 to 14 window. About 70, over 70% of people came to Christ between the ages of 4 and 14, and it's still true today. Why is this not, why is this not an overwhelming mission effort for us? This is what we're called to do. For many of you, you're going to have to step out of your comfort zone. It needs to be a get-to instead of a have-to. 
We get to, we get to be involved in what God's plan. You never know what's in our, our, our nursery right now. We could have God changers all over the place in our children's ministry, in our nursery, in our student ministry. They could, they could be on the verge of either being world changers or not being involved with God at all. We are in a risky time that we need to be a part of. And we're at the verge of maybe some ministries like Awana's. Maybe we're at risk of not being able to do it. That should not be, but we, we want to be sensitive. Maybe the Lord is saying, don't have it this semester. But I, I, don't, I don't know. But we have to step up in our family ministry, and we need you. It's amazing how, you know, you get involved with your kids when they start playing soccer and you coach and you follow along, you coach all the way through those years because you want to be a part of your kid's life in the development of that. How much more in the spiritual realm? We, we have to be involved with our children. We have the chance right now to affect a whole generation. So we need to break with the past. We need to commit our homes to the Lord. We need to get involved with what the family, the body of Christ is doing. And then the the fourth thing is this. We need to become family to others. You know, we live in the day where the family is under extreme attack. There are single moms that never dreamt of being in that situation. And they feel alone so much of the time. They're actually even single adults. They're thinking, you know, where do I fit in the church? Because the church seems to focus so much on the mom and dad and the kiddos. You know, am I a part of this? Listen, this is family. And let me say something about family right quick. I, I do not know about your family, but I can tell you this. All families have some dysfunction in them. I mean, you got some family members you probably don't like. But they're family. What I'm saying is we are a family. We are a family of Christ followers, empowered by God and compelled by His love to do life in a passionate pursuit of becoming like Jesus. That's what we're called to do. I'm not saying everybody's going to be your best friend in this room, but I'm telling you what I've discovered is is that when the battle's on, it's amazing to see family come together. We need to take care of one another. We have to. Let me wrap up with this. You know, oftentimes we think we're going to finish strong. We think of everything we need to get rid of out of our life. We've got to get rid of that, and we start battling the flesh with the flesh. I don't need to do this. I don't need to do that. I don't need to do this. And we find ourselves flesh on flesh with the battle, and we give in, and we falter, and and then we, uh, you know, somebody says something and we get our feelings hurt and, man, we've, we've just blown it. And, and, uh, um, but yet maybe there's another way to look at it. And I, I want to I share with you what I think is a, an incredible way to look at it. There was a young man who was going off to college, you know, for the first time. Had a dorm room. And uh, in his dorm room, he, uh, he decided to put things on his wall that did not reflect the upbringing at all in his home. He started thinking he could think on his own, and these are the things that he wanted. Many of them were vile and were inappropriate and something that he knew were not good for his family. His family wouldn't appreciate it. Who should show up one day but his mom? And his mom comes into his dorm room, and she just sits there. 
And she talks to her son. She doesn't say a thing about the vile things on the wall. She leaves there and goes to the Christian bookstore and finds a a beautiful artist's depiction of Jesus. And she purchases it and sends it to her son. Well, the son opens it and loves his mother, so he feels obligated to kind of put it on the wall, so he hangs it on the wall. Well, the mom goes back to visit a few months later before the semester ends, and she goes into her son's room, and all the vile things had been taken off the wall. But there's the picture of Jesus. And uh, he says this to his mom. He says, you know, Mom, I found the old bad pictures would not go with this one. And so they had to come down and go out. She had solved his problem not by subtraction, but by addition. I wonder, and I think this is wrapping up all the book of Joshua, and I think Joshua, this is what he's saying. Listen, follow God. Follow God. Walk close to him. You see, we try to attack all the addictions and the bad things in our life. Let me tell you, I believe that we can get help. But I'm telling you, if you're not willing to yield all to pursue Christ, you're going to continue to battle those things. Maybe let's look at the solving through addition and not subtraction. I want you to bow your heads with me just a moment, if you would. Would the the prayer teams go ahead and make your way up, elders and prayer teams, just to be available to people and just get along the sides? You know, I don't know how God is working on your heart today. And I don't want to just, I tell you, my prayer every week is, is, Lord, if this is the last time, I want to go out swinging. And so I am praying today just for an outpouring of God's presence. Those things that you just need to yield to Him today and say, Lord, I want to walk close to you. I want to finish strong. I I don't want to, I don't want my name to be in that list of people that ran the 95 yard dash instead of the 100. And let me tell you, it's, it's not going to be easy. Just like parenting today is going to take guts. It's going to take guts to stand up in a world that's just quickly Morally, heading south, it's going to take guts. But let me tell you, His Holy Spirit lives inside of you. And He's saying, listen, I've done it. You yield to me. And let's see what can happen. 